got a pew Bible. The words will also come up on the screen. And uh, we are going to look at this chapter. We've been looking through the book of Jeremiah. And I think the interesting part of this, the first part, is the prayer that Jeremiah makes. Let me just read it. Oh, that my head were a spring of water and my eyes a fountain of tears. I would weep day and night for the slain of my people. Oh, that I had in the desert a lodging place for travelers so that I might leave my people and go away from them. For they are all adulterers, a crowd of unfaithful people. They make ready their tongue like a bow to shoot lies. It is not by truth that they triumph in the land. They go from one sin to another. They do not acknowledge me, declares the Lord. Beware of your friends. Do not trust your brothers, for every brother is a deceiver and every friend a slanderer. Friend deceives friend, and no one speaks the truth. They've taught their tongues to lie. They weary themselves with sinning. You live in the midst of deception. In their deceit, they refuse to acknowledge me, declares the Lord. Therefore, this is what the Lord Almighty says. See, I will refine and test them. For what else can I do because of the sin of my people? Their tongue is a deadly arrow. It speaks with deceit. With his mouth, each speaks cordially to his neighbor. But in his heart, he sets a trap for him. Should I not punish them for this, declares the Lord? Should I not avenge myself on such a nation as this? It's an extraordinary prayer that Jeremiah prays. Um, We ask for many, many things in prayer. I honestly can't say that I have ever asked God, oh, that my head were a spring of water and my eyes a fountain of tears. I think that most of us would want to say, no, Lord, stop me crying. Take away the tears. But Jeremiah, as we look at this, he addresses a situation that is very, very serious for God's people, and it is very serious for the world, and he addresses it from God's perspective and God's pain and God's solution. And I think That is the same situation that we are in. And I'm asking that we consider asking the Lord not to stop us feeling any pain, but that we would see things as they are, that we would have what is called the burden of Christ, and that that would drive us to prayer, and it would drive us to action. So we'll go through this chapter. Um, We'll look at the first nine verses under the heading of deceit. What is wrong with God's people? What is wrong with the world? What's wrong with this country? What's wrong with the church? One thing is certainly deceit. The pain that both God and Jeremiah feel is because of the falseness of the people. Verse 2, I think we recognize a little bit more. Um, Oh, that I had uh, in the desert a lodging place for travelers. He's saying, let me out of here. Let's go. I got to get out of here. Um, song. What is it? Uh, we've got to get out of this place. If it's the last thing we ever do, we've got to go. We've got to get out. Psalm 55 says this Oh, that I had the wings of a dove. I would fly away and be at rest. I would flee far away and stay in the desert. I would hurry to my place of shelter, far from the tempest and the storm. And there's a real temptation for us to do that. We want to get away. We want to leave. Where do you go to, my lovely, when you're asleep in your bed? Where do you, where do you escape to? 
And it's interesting, you find a considerable number of Christians who just want to get away. They want to go and live in the desert. They want to escape, get out. It's a deep irony that in the United States, and also to some extent in this country, that as people became Christians in the cities, what did they do? They said, we've got to get out of this place. And they moved to the suburbs, and they moved to the country areas where they could have a nice life for their family. And they ran away from what they perceived to be the sins and iniquities of the cities, not realizing that those sins and iniquities were not sins and iniquities of the cities, but sins and iniquities of people and people in the country uh, and in the rural areas and in the deserts are just as sinful as anyone else. But I think you and I both understand the temptation. I want to get out. I want to go. I want to run away. I'm continually amazed at how many Christians, when things start getting tough, they just go. They just disappear. They sometimes spiritualize it and say, well, the Lord is calling us. I remember speaking to a missionary once who was working in Europe, in France, and how he was telling me that God was calling them to leave because France was so tough and it was hard on their kids and they wanted to go back to a situation where uh, they'd be surrounded by a lot more Christians and it would be a, a, a much more conducive situation to the Christian faith. But the most conducive situation to the Christian faith is in the midst of the battle. And I think that Jeremiah is a great example to us because he resists the temptation to run away he resists the temptation to wipe his eyes and disappear. He stays and he weeps with and for the people. And what a situation. Look at verse 2. They were adulterers. They are all adulterers, a crowd of unfaithful people. They are <coughs> deceitful and slanderous. Verse 4 talks about that deceit that occurs. Every brother is a deceiver. And that's a play on the name of God's people, Jacob, the people of Jacob. Genesis 27, verse 36, truly you are a deceiver. You are well named. Jacob was a deceitful person. That deceit is shown in their language. Their tongue is made ready like a bow. What happened was that if you were an archer, you would stand on the bow, you would bend the bow, and you would put the arrows in. And he's saying, that their tongue is being bent like the bow so that it can shoot out arrows of deceit and lies. Verse 5, friend deceives friend, <coughs> and no one speaks the truth. They have taught their tongues to lie. They weary themselves with sinning. Lying has become such a habit that they do not know how to tell the truth. Sometimes we can be so good at lying. I remember one time we had a... Um, a plate at the front, a collection. We used to have a collection at the front. And somebody came in, and with my own eyes, I saw them take the money out and put it in their pocket, which was not really the purpose of the collection. Um, and when the bag's passed around and you're a visitor, it isn't really for you to say, oh, that's nice, thank you. It's, you meant to put something in. Well, I, I saw them with my own eyes, and I took them aside and said, excuse me, it would be a good idea if you put that back. Do you know this? She swore blind so vehemently that she hadn't done it that I almost began to believe her. And yet I'd seen her. I think, I, what an absolutely extraordinary ability to lie. And yet, 
deceit, lying, becomes very, very much, very quickly part of our nature. So much so that we almost find it difficult to tell the truth. Friends and family deceive one another. So much so they are worn out with sinning. They are weary with corruption. There is social breakdown. And as a result, they, they have no time for God. Verse 6, you live in the midst of deception. In their deceit, they refuse to acknowledge me. They are so given over to illusion and unreality that there's just no place for God at all. I think that we should not be surprised that we live in a society and in a culture where there's so much distrust and so much deceit. Why should people tell the truth? Why shouldn't you lie if it's to your advantage? You have no fear of God. You have no acknowledgement of God. You have no heart commitment to God. And therefore, why not? Why not just pretend? Why not just make things up? Why not just play the game? And God says that he's going to refine and test. And so for me, that's really interesting because it's not punishment. God is saying it's like, he's like the smelter. He's going to melt and to remove the impurities of the ore. We sometimes pray, at least I hope we pray. It's a very dangerous prayer. Lord, make me pure. Peter says this. In 1 Peter 1, 6, in this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while you may have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. These have come so that your faith of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, may be proved genuine and may result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. How do we know we're not deceiving ourselves? How do we know we're not deceiving other people? How do we know that we're for real? You know, the only answer is, when God refines us and when God tests us. What else can I do, he says, because of the sin of my people? Jesus over and over again emphasizes that the thing that most disturbed him was the hypocrisy of people who profess to follow him. We say, well, are we for real? Are we really for real? Are we, is the church for real? Are we for real? I think the only way for us to know that is when God refines us and when God tests us and when God proves us. Because otherwise, it's so easy for us to deceive and to be deceived. And then verses 10 to 16, desolation. I will weep and wail for the mountains and take up a lament concerning the desert pastures. They are desolate and untraveled, and the lowing of cattle is not heard. The birds of the air have fled, and the animals are gone. I will make Jerusalem a heap of ruins, a haunt of jackals, and I will lay waste the towns of Judah so that no one can live there. What man is wise enough to understand this? Who has been instructed by the Lord and can explain it? Why has the land been ruined and laid waste like a desert that no one can cross? The Lord said, It is because they have forsaken my law which I set before them. They have not obeyed me or followed my law. Instead, they have followed the stubbornness of their hearts. They have followed the Baals as their father, fathers taught them. Therefore, this is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says. See, I will make this people eat bitter food and drink poisoned water. 
I will scatter them among nations that neither they nor their fathers have known, and I will pursue them with the sword until I have destroyed them. Jeremiah does weep, and he weeps and he wails for the mountains. He weeps for the desolation amongst the animals and in the cities as well. It stirs up really strong emotions in him. The cattle cannot graze. Soon the jackals will inhabit the ruins of Jerusalem. It reminds us of Jesus looking at Jerusalem and weeping and wailing over the destruction of Jerusalem. It's funny, we live in a world, you know, you start off, when you started off this year, how many of us would have thought of revolution in Egypt or planes bombing Benghazi or food being poisoned by a nuclear accident caused by an earthquake and a tsunami in Japan. There's desolation and it causes him to weep. And he asks, why has this happened? <coughs> and it happened. We, well, we know that Jeremiah spoke these words after Nebuchadnezzar's first attack on Jerusalem. Second Kings 24, verse 1, during Jehoiakim's reign, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, invaded the land, and Jehoiakim became his vassal for three years, but then he changed his mind and rebelled against Nebuchadnezzar. The Lord sent Babylonian, Aramean, Moabite, and Ammonite raiders against him. He sent them to destroy Judah in accordance with the word of the Lord proclaimed by his servants, the prophets. Surely these things happened to Judah according to the Lord's command in order to remove them from his presence because of the sins of Manasseh and all he had done, including the shedding of innocent blood, for he had filled Jerusalem with innocent blood, and the Lord was not willing to forgive." Should I not avenge myself on such a nation as this? Why had that happened? Verse 13, the answer, it's not difficult. He says, it's because they have forsaken my law, which I set before them. They have not obeyed me or followed my law. God says to his people, you had my law and you rejected it. And the interesting thing about that is that the worst thing God can do for us is when we reject his law is leave us to our own devices. He doesn't need to come and punish us because the punishment, if you like, the destruction, is something that occurs ourselves. What does that have to do with us? Well, I think it's got a lot to do with us in this way. I think God has blessed this nation of Scotland and God has blessed this nation of Britain. If you look at uh, Neil Ferguson's documentaries on civilization or read his book, Civilization. He argues the, the blessings that came through Christianity. And now we live in a society and in a culture which is deliberately and openly rejecting God and his word. Radio 5 Live. Last week, Harriet Harman said this, and these words chilled my bone. She said, our laws override scripture. Our laws override Scripture. Whose laws? The laws that are made by politicians. The laws that can change next year or the year after or whatever. Now, much as I respect politicians, and I do, and much as I think we need politicians and they are God's servants to do us good, as the Bible teaches, the notion that Scripture is overridden 
by laws that are made up by this parliament and influenced by Rupert Murdoch and others is to me absolutely horrendous. And for any politician or any leader to say, to stand up and instead of acknowledging God, instead of kissing the sun as Psalm 2 puts it, but saying our laws override scripture is for me one of the most chilling things that I've heard. They followed, verse 14, look at it. They followed the stubbornness of their hearts. They followed their bales, the gods of their cultures. And again, I, I wonder sometimes if in the church we've not compromised way too much with this. Because what's happening in the terms of the enemies of the gospel, it's called salami tactics. They slice off bit by bit by bit until when people finally wake up and start wanting to do something about it, it's too late. It's gone. And I feel that we have a real problem in our culture. I got a, a letter or a, an email from a friend who's organizing an outreach this week, and he works for a Christian organization, and his bosses warned him. They, they warned him in terms of his job. They said, don't do anything that would upset non-Christians. Now, how do you do that? This is a trick. I, I have no idea. How do you teach the gospel without upsetting people? You don't go out deliberately to upset people. You really don't. Some of us have a natural talent for it, but you don't do it, and you shouldn't try to do it. But how do you proclaim the gospel and not upset people? How do you say to Caesar, you are not God? How do you say to Harriet Harman and others, no, sorry, your laws do not override Scripture? How do you say to the people of our country, you're shedding innocent blood and people not get offended? They followed the stubbornness of their own hearts. I sometimes think that Christians' desire to be nice and not to offend people has got nothing to do with not offending people. It's got to do with we don't want to have any kind of trouble and difficulty. And God says, you followed the stubbornness of your own hearts. And so they went into bitterness and exile. In, in that culture, the Assyrians who invaded and the Arameans and so on, they believed in territorial gods. So their idea was that they would, if they took the Israelites out of the culture, out of Israel, then that the Israelites would assimilate into another culture. God would have no power. The God of Israel would have no power, and they would take them over. And actually, that's often what happened with different cultures. People were taken into exile and destroyed. The extraordinary thing about the Jewish people is no matter how many times they've been taken into exile, they're still there. That really is, it really is one of the most remarkable things in world history that the Jews still exist because they've been so hated and so persecuted. Don't believe that the Holocaust was the first time that something like that happened. From the pogroms in medieval Europe to what went on in North Africa and the hatred for the Jews that still exists in many, many parts of the world. The, what is it, the French designer who felt quite happy to talk about. That's deeply ingrained. That anti-Semitism is deeply ingrained. And yet, they still survive. The Jews still survive. And that's what the Assyrians tried to do. Of course, they would take them where they wanted to destroy them. But Jeremiah uh, promises, no, that this is not going to happen. But they are taken away. It's a bit like uh, if you've ever read any of the stories of the Highland Clearances, how back heartbreaking it is 
There are some who want to escape into the desert, and there are some who turn it into a desert. I, as some of you know, I ministered in Sutherland for a while. Sutherland is now the least populated area of Europe, but it wasn't always like that. And when you go and you visit some of the straths and some of the glens in Sutherland, and you see the desolation, or you visit the wee church in Argai, where the people, as they were being thrown off the land and exiled to America and to Australia, terrible fate, as they were, sorry, as they were being exiled in that way, they, they, they carved their initials and they carved scripture into the windows of that church. You can still go and you can still see it. There's a bitterness in exile. There's a desolation that occurs. And I think that what God is saying to us in our culture is, as you, re- as you neglect my word, as you turn away from my word, you're, create, you're creating a wasteland, and you're calling it paradise. And in Scotland, we need to be telling our, our politicians and others, no, we don't want to go that route. We don't want the wasteland. There's a song I've always wanted to quote. I absolutely love this song. Um, it's a bit weird, so if you don't get it, don't worry. Um, Bob Dylan had a fantastic song called Desolation Row, and I just thought it fitted this so well. Now the moon is almost hidden, the stars are beginning to hide, the fortune-telling lady has even taken all her things inside, all except for Cain and Abel and the hunchback of Notre Dame, everybody's making love or else expecting rain, and the good Samaritan is dressing, he's getting ready for the show, he's going to the carnival tonight on Desolation Row. Now Ophelia, she's neath the window, for her I feel so afraid. On her 22nd birthday, she already is an old maid. To her, death is quite romantic. She wears an iron vest. Her professions, her religion, her sin is her lifelessness. And those her eyes are fixed upon Noah's great rainbow, she spends her time peeking into desolation row. I love that line, her sin is her lifelessness. And although her eyes are fixed upon, she's looking for the hope of the rainbow. In reality, she's looking into desolation row. I think that the Word of God applies to us absolutely, that in this culture, this is a hard place, in this culture, we are creating desolation role. Sorry, I'm in a really 1960s move, but as Joni Mitchell, they paved paradise and they put up a parking lot. And that is what's happening in our culture. And we need to see that, and we need to ask that we would be able to weep. Because it continues, verses 17 to 22. This is what the Lord Almighty says. Consider now, call for the wailing women to come. Send for the most skillful of them. Let them come quickly and wail over us till our eyes overflow with tears and water streams from our eyelids. The sound of wailing is heard from Zion. (coughs) How ruined we are. How great is our shame. We must leave our land because our houses are in ruins. Now, O women, hear the word of the Lord. Open your ears to the words of his mouth. Teach your daughters how to wail. Teach one another a lament. Death has climbed in through our windows and has entered our fortresses. It has cut off the children from the streets and the young men from the public squares. The wailing women were the professional mourners. But this time, says Jeremiah, it's for real. It's not that you're paid to go and mourn. He says you're going to have a real reason for mourning. And in fact, there's not going to be enough of you. So you'd better start training your daughters to mourn. Death is pictured everywhere pictured unusually in the Bible and in the Old Testament as the grim reaper 
coming in every window. And it's a horrendous and it's a horrible, horrible picture. And I think that, again, what God says to us in our situation and in our culture, and we find this hard, because a lot of us have grown up as evangelical Christians or come into the church, and we've really adopted, haven't we? We've adopted the whole scenario of it's all about me and how I feel and how I get to heaven and how happy I am and and so on. And we talk about having the heart of God and we talk about caring and so on. But we have no idea what the heart of God is. We don't really want to see. We don't want to be made uncomfortable. But in this city of Dundee and in the surrounding area and in this nation of Scotland, there is the icy hand of death. There is a situation of desolation and increasing desolation. I think of Dylan's desolation row. Sometimes when I see people's faces, young people's faces especially, and you travel on the bus sometimes, faces that are glaky and worn, and eyes that are, are glazed because of drugs, and it's desolation row. Or you go to people's homes, and the confused and messed up and mis- mixed up broken families and sexualities and everything, and it's desolation row. And the poverty And the brokenness of people in a society and in a country where some people get billions in bonuses. And it's desolation row. And the nuclear reactor is broken and the bombers flying. And it's desolation row. And the Christians say, well, no, we'd rather be in our churches. And we'd rather be thinking about how we praise God and what. And God says, no, I want you to open your eyes and I want you to see. I want you to see what's happening. I want you to feel a little bit of what is happening. Oh, that my head were a spring of water and my eyes a fountain of tears. And how do we express that? Well, I think, I'm so thankful that we have the Psalms because I don't have the words to express it, but the words that are expressed in in God's word uh, help us. So we're going to sing one of those before we go and look at the last few verses which Show us God's way of dealing with this. Remember that God is telling us this not to punish us, but he wants to refine and test us. And we'll, we'll look just in a moment at uh, God's delight and how there is a way out. But let's sing one of those psalms. We'll sing Psalm 51. Oh my God, have mercy on me. In your steadfast love I pray. In your infinite compassions my transgressions wipe away. Cleanse me from iniquity. Wash my sin away from me. The tune is uh, Ottawa and we'll stand to sing.